Hi, my name is Jan Wilczek from thewolfsound.com. Welcome to Wolf Talk, a podcast about audio programming. In this podcast, you will learn how to build your career in programming or research related to audio, meet programmers and researchers from all around the world, and learn about the intricacies of sound. Hi everyone, this is Jan Wilczek from dwolfsound.com and welcome to the ninth episode of the Wolf Talk podcast. Today I have a very, very special guest for you, who is Stefano D'Angelo from Italy, who did his PhD at the Acoustic Lab of the Alto University, then worked at Arturia as an audio research engineer, then started freelancing and consulting in the audio programming space while still being incredibly active in the field of audio research. And finally, recently, he founded Orastron to complement his consulting activities. I met Stefano at the Digital Audio Effects Conference in 2022, and then again at the Audio Developers Conference 2022. At both these conferences, we had our talks, and I really must say he's an amazing, amazing person. I really love talking to him wherever I have the chance to. So there are a lot of people who are asking how to become an audio programming consultant. So how to consult in the world of audio programming. And I really wanted to title this episode, how to become an audio programming consultant with Stefano D'Angelo. But he said that he can only talk about his own experience. So we decided to go with a a little bit softer title, but I still believe that you will find uh, a huge number of tips on how to start audio programming and audio consulting in general. I really believe that you should go talk to him if you have the chance and you have so because I link to all the references, people, places mentioned in this podcast and also how to contact Stefano in the episode notes under dwolfsum.com slash talk 009. And if you want to start in the field of audio programming and maybe eventually become an audio programming consultant, then I have a resource just for you. It's my audio plugin developer checklist, which you can get at dwolfsound.com checklist. It lists every bit of knowledge that I believe is necessary to start in the field of audio programming. And now, Stefano D'Angelo. Hi, Stefano. Thanks for agreeing on this interview. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, Jan. Um, my name is Stefano D'Angelo. I'm the founder and CEO of Orastron, which is a small company that does DSP for bigger companies in, uh, you know, for audio plugins and hardware effects, synthesizers and so on. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool because that's exactly the stuff that, that interests me. Uh, so I, I know that there are a lot of listeners who are interested in, you know, how to do basically similar thing that you've done so it would be really cool if you could if we could trace you know your path from the very beginning so that's why i wanted to ask you where did your interest in music come from Uh, that's a tough one (laughs) (laughs) very early i mean as long as i could trace it uh, when i was three years old i was already you know a little bit crazy about music 
like my brother was playing piano and I was there all the time starting to trying to play by myself and so on. And this interest grew with time. Like I took piano lessons as a child. Then there was a period in which I stopped. And then I started playing bass, electric bass at high school and continued from that point on. So the interest is very, you know, rooted in my infancy. Okay, and uh, where did you start, you know, applying technology uh, to music, you know, from the, I don't know, electronics programming side of things? Yeah, that should have been 2003, 2004. I was in high school and I didn't have the money to afford um, uh, an effects unit for bass. So I I was already into computers, by the way. So I figured out that I could plug my bass inside the microphone input and take the output from the speakers and uh, playing with the APIs and stuff, I could do some distortion things, very bad stuff, but... but (laughs) Nice. And then what did you uh, decide to study for your bachelor's and master's? Yeah, so I went for computer engineering. I was not really uh, imagining that I would end up doing audio and stuff. Uh, so I did that in um, at the Polite- I did my studies in the in Turin, northern Italy, at the Polytechnic, both my bachelor and my masters. And during my masters, I did an Erasmus exchange in Finland because at that point I started to understand that I wanted to you know, pursue an audio DSP or whatever career. So I went to the root of the evil. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And uh, was it so, so uh, fruitful that you wanted to do a PhD there after, after your master's? Uh, No, I mean, I liked it a lot. Um, But when I got back, I started working in a completely different field in IoT stuff. Uh, it was um, a research center, which is co-funded also by the Polytechnic of Turin. So essentially I didn't move much. And I was doing this, uh, you know, working with um, IoT devices and uh, you know, web projects and stuff like that. But after six or seven months, I had this yeah, crazy idea of going back to Finland and try to do a PhD in the things that interested me, interested me the most. And that's what I did. Yeah, nice. And uh, do you still remember how was the period of doing a PhD in, in Finland at Alto? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting time. I mean, it's, it lasted only three years, even though the PhD normally lasts four years in Finland. Um, I mean, it, it was a little bit complicated for me because I started without funding. So I had to publish as much as possible in the first year to get the funding for the following month. <laughs> I managed to do it because now I wouldn't do it. But yeah, uh, so I, at that point I was more or less uh, comfortable with brushing out as much stuff as possible. So it was a sprint from the beginning to the end. But I liked it very much, and there's fantastic stuff there. There's a very big department uh, doing both acoustics and signal processing, so it's been a great experience. And uh, may I ask who was your supervisor and what was your topic, like the main topic of the PhD thesis? Yeah, my supervisor was uh, Professor Vesa Valimaki, uh, who is, I guess, 
pretty much known in the field for this kind of stuff. I mean, for DSP, music DSP. Uh, what I was doing, I was, I mean, my thesis, my work has been mostly on virtual analog modeling. Uh, even though I started with a completely different idea, but you know. yeah, that's, that's how, how it sometimes happens, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, I, I remember that I also uh, used your thesis for my master thesis, so that's uh, that's something a piece of reading I can I can recommend. <laughs> Ready. And then uh, were you, when you were uh, extremely fast done with your PhD, uh, what were your next steps? Did you actually consider applying for a research position in academia or did you want to, you know, drop it and go straight to the industry? No, actually, I didn't want to continue there. I mean, in academia in general, because uh, um, I'm a little bit too anarchic, let's say, as, uh, in my behavior even for academia standards. Uh, so what I did was actually taking a break for, uh, I guess, nine months or something like that, starting then looking again for um, companies that wanted to hire me for doing DSP, which I've never done professionally until that point. I mean, apart from the PhD. And it's not been easy, but after a few months, I got hired by Arturia in France, and that's how it continued. Awesome. Uh I know that mm, I think most of people that are interested in, in audio stuff, they know Arturia. So I think everyone would be curious to know what you were involved there with. Uh, I, I know that some things you can share. Uh, I'm just curious how much. Uh, not much, I guess, uh, luckily. Uh, but I can tell that um, the first part of my, let's say, employment that was about fixing stuff. <laughs> and fixing very old, ancient, horrible stuff. Uh, but then later it got better because first I started doing some um, modeling of things that I cannot mention at the moment. Let's say, I mean, modeling in some of the plugins for the collection five, I guess, if I remember correctly. But it was not, I mean, I was doing smaller pieces of different instruments and stuff like that. And then for the collection six, I've been working like a, uh, like crazy on the Bukla Music Easel uh, for uh, maybe 10 months or something like that. It was a horrible uh, disaster since two models, actually. And it took a long, long time, a lot of effort. And I'm happy that they actually put the money for me to do all this work at that time, because that's not uh, usual, I would say, in normal companies. Cool. So, uh, could you somehow mm, describe how did it feel, you know, to work for such a big music software company like Arturia? Well, I mean, at, the, at that time it was maybe big from the outside, but not that big from the inside, in the sense that it was uh, that there were like 50 employees or something like this. Even okay. um, they also had some. Uh, other parts of the company in USA and if I remember correctly, Mexico or something like that, but I essentially never met anybody from there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, everybody knew each other, which was a very good thing. And I could talk to people doing hardware, doing support, doing whatever all the time, which was good. Um, 
probably it's not that good anymore now that they're bigger. <laughs> what do I know, actually? Um, other than that, I mean, having this responsibility, especially for the collection six, to do most of the modeling for a new instrument that's also kind of iconic and very well desired more than known, let's put it like that. That's been a huge responsibility. And the fact that it's been successful, I mean, it was a... Uh, it's something I'm very proud of at this point. But back then it was a nightmare. <laughs> nice. And uh, how did you find, uh, you know, the necessity to now uh, write code that not only works, but also works in an optimal structured way? So was it something that you already took over from your computer engineering degree and your IoT work? Or was it something that you needed to somehow learn how to do it in the audio world? Uh, no, I think I knew already most of the stuff. I mean, I, I, I learned as well when I was, at, especially at the beginning at Arturia, reading the old code. I mean, there was some code from early 2000s and they were inventing uh, crazy ways to save CPU and stuff. Um, but other than that, I already had uh, quite some knowledge in computer architecture and low-level programming. So I more or less knew what needed to be done. Nice. And then, uh, like, was this experience so difficult uh, Then you decided to quit Arturia, if, if I may ask? Or was were there, like, simply the, the, the need to pursue something on your own? Well, well as I said, I have this uh, strange uh, character. And the, <laughs> I cannot be in the same spot for too long. <laughs> Um, it's not necessarily the will to explore new stuff, but it's, uh, you know, being uncomfortable doing the same things over and over. So when I had that feeling that I would proceed modeling stuff for uh, indefinitely, let's say, I was, okay, no, I need to do something else at this point. And um, I mean, I wanted to try something bigger than usual, you know, career path. I just wanted to start something of my own. So I went back to Italy and continued on my own. Yeah, so so how did it look uh, at the beginning? So you became a kind of a freelancer, you could say? Absolutely, yes. So, yeah, essentially the thing was very smooth, the, the transition, because I went back home, so I didn't have any expenses. Uh, even though, I mean... Uh, I had to. Uh, I'm living in a very small place in southern Italy, so there are very few services and stuff. Uh, I mean, it's a rural kind of life, which I was not used to at that point anymore. But apart from that, I mean, I started working for uh, Arturia and others like a couple of months after I quit Arturia. So the, the, the transition was extremely smooth. Okay, nice. Uh, actually, that's a question that I often also get asked, um, which is, when you are a freelancer, then how do you find companies to freelance for? Uh, is it is it a question that you can answer, or no? Okay, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I had Arturi as a client from the beginning because they knew me and we were working already with each other, so. I mean, it was very easy for me to get something more and continue with them. Um, but at the same time, more or less, I also got a, uh, um, hired to do some work for Neural DSP, 
mm-hmm. which I didn't know. Uh, the thing went like this. I just uh, took a plane and did a tour in Northern Europe, a very small tour. Uh, I went to visit, uh, essentially, the company that I wanted to visit the most was Elk, uh, with which I've worked later on but for very small things. But I knew them personally, so I just wanted to meet them. Then I went around a little bit in Sweden and Finland and managed to meet the guys at Neural, which were they were starting at the time as well. So that maybe helped a lot because they were looking for people with you know this sort of skills and so on. Uh, we had mutual friends also because I was in Finland before. So yeah, that's how it started, and it's been working great since that moment on. Um, so yeah, one way of, you know, I would say that one way is that you find people who actually really need the skills that you can offer. And especially if you have referrals, that's, uh, easier. Um, then with other clients, it's been mostly luck, I would say, because it's, you know, there is an opportunity you catch it. If there's somebody else, somebody else would catch it or something like that. I mean, I'm not systematic in these kind of things. Okay, nice. I, I think it's already already very helpful. And it also looks that, uh, you know, also having friends can help. I mean, that's not a bad thing. If you know people from the industry uh, and they know that they can trust you, it's much more uh, pos- plausible, right? That they can hire you again and again or they recommend you to someone else. Absolutely, and reputation for this kind of stuff is absolutely vital. Uh, and the best way to promote yourself is having somebody else do it for you. <laughs> nice, nice. And then uh, I know that uh, later on, you in your in your freelance career, you also founded uh, Orastron. So uh, could you maybe expand on the idea? So what was the idea behind Orastron, and how? did it complement your freelancing services? Yeah, it's been a complicated mess, actually. (laughs) The original idea was that um, I wanted to expand a little bit from just DSP to other things around, like maybe hardware design, maybe more research-oriented stuff, Uh, all the kind of skills that companies have a little bit of um, a hard time finding, uh, especially at a very high level. So the idea was actually to make something, you know, really top notch and uh, uh, hard to find. Uh, That didn't quite work out as expected, to be honest. Uh, Also because I realized later on that the market is so small that the demand for this kind of is very low. (laughs) But then I, I mean, I had this other, um, let's say, card to play, which is trying to productify a little bit the services that I was already developed, I mean, I was already offering as a freelancer. And that's what we are trying to do now. So, um, you know, uh, making it more, access- making DSP development and DSP services more accessible to a wider audience. Okay, nice. And uh, could you maybe then tell what are the, the products that are that you are offering or working on? maybe going chronologically, if that's possible? Okay, it won't make much sense chronologically, but let's do it. <laughs> uh, the first thing that we put out is uh, actually a research thing, which is completely outside of what you would expect. I don't know. 
but it's um, it's a programming language for uh, music DSP, which is called Charamella, uh, which is weird because we've been using it already internally for developing some models for clients. Uh, essentially, this thing at the beginning was just a code generation tool. Mm -hmm. It expanded it into this uh, little language, which has some uh, interesting characteristics, which are very technical. But I will try to make them um, accessible, let's say. Uh, so the main one is that it's um, extremely modular in topology, which means that you can describe any system in any way you like, and it will trying to find a computation path by its own and translate it into code, which is somewhat similar to what functional languages do, like Faust and stuff like that. But we've shown that it's even more modular than them in a way. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, the other characteristics are that it's extremely small. Uh, the compiler is written in JavaScript. It runs inside the browser. Um, and yeah, we want it to be uh, lean and mean as much as possible, and to, to to really make this sort of DSP development enjoyable, which is not that simple. Okay, so uh, yeah, yeah, uh, maybe maybe can I ask then um, which applications are best for Charmella? Is it for uh, fast prototyping DSP or uh, implementing optimally what you already have? Yeah, at the moment it's a research tool, even though one of the objectives of the project is to make it not a research tool, but actually usable in uh, in real products and stuff like that, even also because we've done it already. I mean, we know it can be done. Um, at the moment, it's mostly useful for virtual analog stuff, I would say. So circuit simulation, circuit emulation, whatnot. Um, there are some limitations that we are now, I mean, we, we are uh, circumventing manually at the moment. Like you cannot really implement uh, nonlinear functions, <laughs> but you can write them in C and have them working with the uh, the code that is produced, but it can do all the linear part of a circuit pretty easily, which is already a, a good fit. Also, because the code it generates is uh, probably much better than the compiler of other similar languages. Uh, so the actual output code can be used in production, and that's a good news. Um, yeah. Nice. Uh, and uh, did you also wanted to add something uh, about Charamella? Because I, I, I fear that I interrupted you a little bit. Oh, I just forgot the question. <laughs> ah, okay. okay. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I think you... That's the thing, maybe, mostly. Uh, the Maybe the only other thing that I can say is that the compiler is um, written in such a way that it's really, really easy to hack. So if you want to add more output formats or uh, output languages, you can do it yourself. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, that also ties into the idea of uh, the Lego Lego bricks that you mentioned during your audio developers conference talk. Uh, exactly to have to have like really fine grained tools that you can easily then interconnect. Uh, yeah, and uh, to this 
I wanted to ask you uh, what was your next product then? Yeah, the next product was something that we've done just for, well, not exactly just for fun, but mostly for fun, which was a, which is a Y effect for the Commodore 64, um, which we have been developing in assembler for the, for the MOS uh, 6510, which is the, you know, the, the original 8-bit CPU, which runs at one megahertz and so on. Uh, essentially, the thing is, some sort of graphical interface that controls the analog filter that is inside the Commodore 64. And since the Commodore 64 has an audio input, that's not really, I mean, it's not a really known fact. You can actually plug a guitar inside it and then take the output from, I mean, the audio output and, uh, you know, have this thing run through the filter, the analog filter that's inside of the, of the computer. And we just implemented a band pass that moves, you know, back and forth with the LFO in software. And we also did, um, how is it called? Uh, ex we could also interface an expression pedal through the joystick port. And then, as if it was not enough, we made a VST plugin for this thing. I mean, that more or less does the same thing. We modeled the, the circuit and so on. And uh, there is also a demo that we have on the website that runs inside the browser. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can link. To, we can link to it in the in the episode notes. Then nice. Ah. Okay. That's great. Thanks. <laughs> it was a crazy thing. It took so much. I mean, only to record the stuff to cassettes and find all the parts. And the TV died while we were working on it. I mean, it took but we did it. Um, and then the last product that we announced just a couple of weeks back um, is Brickworks, which is a library of DSP components. So essentially, we noticed that there is a lack of um, a general, let's say, a, a wide col a collection of DSP modules expressed as a, as a cohesive library. So it's a stupid idea, but it's a good idea because it allows people to use DSP algorithms uh, that work uh, without too much hassle and without having to learn too many new things. Uh, so yeah, the, we are doing that as well. Okay, so now we established that you already published quite a few products with Orastron and before when you are also uh, freelancing and before at Arturia. So I wanted to ask you, what is your workflow when you approach uh, new projects, new products, etc.? Okay, so yeah, I mean, it's really, really dependent on who is willing to develop them and what kind of projects they are. I mean, this is obvious, but it needs to be stated. Um, uh, normally, if it's us doing the work, like these three things that we have developed ourselves, it's very chaotic in the way that it is organized. Uh, because we more or less already know what needs to be done. It's just a matter of organizing things. So sometimes we have some questions, so we rush in some directions and then gather some information, then organize the thing later on. Uh, with companies, it, it's, uh, it's different because maybe they do the same things internally and they just hand over the problem to us. So they already know what they want to do exactly and uh just give us a very specific task that uh, you know you can schedule much more easily um 
So yeah, uh, when it comes to the nature of the things that need to be done, um, there are essentially two possibilities. One, that is, you know how to do them. <laughs> two is that you don't know. <laughs> um, in first case, you can create your own, you know, procedure. Let's say uh, sometimes even. I mean, if now uh, anybody asks us to model a circuit that we've already seen, it's very easy. But if it's something that we can more or less understand how it works, like in a one hour or so, uh, we already know what are the phases of development. Instead, if somebody comes and says, "Okay, have this problem. Let's uh, let's see if you can solve it," uh, then it's uh, probably the first part is just research and attempts and stuff like that, and then we will discuss about the specific requirements and the rest, and then do the, the actual development. Okay, and uh, on that note, a little bit, I wanted to ask you, like personally, uh, you, how are you able to balance? like this research side of things, development side of things, and also, you know, running the company because like the management duties and on that also take a lot of time. Yeah. Is it is it also chaos? Yeah, but not because of us. I mean, uh, since I'm, I'm the guy who is also responsible for the administration and I'm not that competent in you know, taxation, economics, and, uh, you know, all the paperwork, uh, I try to be uh, as diligent as possible. So do have the least amount of surprises. But unluckily, we are in Italy and Italian bureaucracy is probably the worst in the world. <laughs> so we can try to be as predictable as possible, but the outer world will not be, um, which ends up taking a lot of time, to be honest. But other than that, uh, if we talk about research and stuff that we like doing, <laughs> like taxes um uh, it depends again i mean in some cases um research is not like you know a complete invention out of the thin air and something like that sometimes you know more or less already what you need to be investigating other times it's more random so again the same considerations more or less apply when it comes to the time that we allocate we are totally chaotic because uh, maybe you know that we've been publishing a lot of stuff like yes yes i i've seen on the website that's really really impressive thank you <laughs> yeah i mean ideas come to mind then we try to find partners to write them because we don't have the time to <laughs> and sometimes it turns into back and forth uh, exchanges with people and things that never get done things that get done and you know in six months in two years or uh, it's completely random in a way um in, when it comes to the academic theoretical part when it comes to the actual development it's more controlled uh but still i mean research is not something that's certain you know it's way it depends you cannot plan everything in advance and also on that on that note like uh, for you, is it is it like an eight-hour day shift, or is it like a twelve-hour day shift, seven days a week? Because it's your your company in a way. Yeah, this is maybe surprising. Um, it can be ten hours a day, but it can be ten hours a day, seven days a week, in some periods. 
or it can be four hours a day, three days a week in other periods. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's summer. It's <laughs> when do- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not killing myself with work, which is uh, maybe surprising. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And uh, when you've already like gathered so much experience, like, are you able to to tell like how differs the work that that the research work that you do? Uh, now at your company and uh, how this was at Arturia and uh, how was the research work during your PhD? Like, is anything different in this in this research work? Okay. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when you do the PhD, you're also supposed to learn a lot um, in the sense that you are not an expert yet in the field and you are trying to master a lot of research done by other people in order to become an expert, which is not the case anymore. If you go to work in a company, they expect you to be already an expert. Otherwise, why would they hire you in the first place? Um, so, in I mean, when I was working at Arturia, but I guess it's similar in other companies, the research is much more focused and uh, usually there are many more steps involved when trying to disseminate it. Like not everything that you do will be uh, published or let be known by the public in one way or another and stuff like that. So it, it can be more complicated. But on the other hand, it's uh, in some in some way much more rewarding, to be honest, because when you do something that's new and it ends up in a product and people go crazy about it, you know, uh, that that's what we want to see usually. Um, with my own company and with my own freelancing, it's still different in a way because it's also a weapon for um, advertisement, um, which was not the case back at two. I mean, not in the same sense, at least. Um, here, I'm actually trying to sell my expertise, uh, which is different from selling a product for users. So here, I'm trying to be much more open on what we are doing and how we are doing it. Um, not everything get pub- gets published as well. Uh, there are some things that will probably be published in the future at some point. Um, but it's more of a balance between, you know, company level stuff and university level stuff. We are in between. Okay, nice. And uh, Speaking of, of research at your company, then could you maybe share a little bit what are the challenges that you must face uh, when you're doing plugins specifically, uh, plugins or products, specifically in the area of virtual analog modeling? So what do you still find challenging there? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the most challenging part is usually the solution of implicit equations. Uh, which comes uh, very, 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 very often. Um, the thing is, when, when you do models of circuits, uh, I mean, who, who mm, designed the circuits in the first place didn't care exactly what the circuit was doing. Uh, like they were, you know, doing something, trying some alternatives, the one that works best, that's in the product. Uh, when you're modeling the stuff, you need to know so much about the circuit that the designer himself would kill himself. <laughs> so, um, 
you end up with things that are not mathematically solvable, or at least not solvable in an easy way, and you have to make them work in real time, which are two uh, contrasting requirements. So that part is of particular difficulty. Other things we managed more or less to, to, to deal with in efficient ways, like, for example, time varying stability problems and time varying, you know, tra transient stuff. That's something that we can do very well now. But when I started, I mean, doing my freelancing, uh, that was not very clear uh, to me, in the sense that it's still not very clear in the literature. We will probably publish something about it because we probably managed to solve a big part of this problem. Nice. So I'm looking forward then to, to reading about this. Yeah, and big time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, maybe on a more relaxed note, then when you are doing your research on where implementing, then what are your uh, personal favorite, you know, tools, programming languages, uh, etc. I know that you mentioned some of them uh, in during your audio developers conference talk, but I wanted to, to ask you, like, which, which one are your go to tools that you'd use every day? The best one is Charamel, of course. <laughs> Other than that, uh, no, no, to be serious. Uh, I mean, most of the programming that we do is done in C or C++, but for prototypes we use uh, Octave, which is a MATLAB clone. Um, yeah, that helps a lot, to be honest, because there's no use in going directly from you know mathematics to C. If you have a language in between that's a little bit easier, you can modify stuff because before getting to the details, which is very nice. Um, then uh, one tool they use a lot is Maxima, which is a computer-aided algebra system. Essentially, it's something that solves equations uh, symbolically rather than numerically, which is extremely useful. Um, then, of course, SPICE, which is the de facto standard circuit simulation tool uh, that's used by all the industry. Um, what else? Um, there is a program called GNUplot, which is very useful for plotting functions and viewing them for different, from different angles and stuff like that. Um, there is another tool that I like a lot, which is pretty much unknown, I guess it's called WebPlot Digitizer, which is a small program to extract data from images. For example, if you have a data sheet, you can just, you know, uh, mark the points where the curves go, and then it extracts the you know the data from it, which is very useful. Um, I'm probably forgetting something, but those are probably the most the things that I use the most. Pen, pen and paper. Pen and paper, yeah, <laughs> not that much anymore. To be honest. okay, cool. That, that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah, so I, 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 I was curious, like, how do you handle then, then the mathematical derivations? But then it means that you use this this Maxima software. Not just that. We also have another tool that we, we, we haven't published. And we will probably never publish anything soon. Um, we have this tool which essentially converts, um, not automatically, by the way, but it helps converting the circuit to code. Uh, we give it a SpiceNet list and it... First, it prints all the, the all the equations of the circuit. Then it collaborates with you in solving them. Like you, you tell it, I want to solve this first, then this other one, and stuff like that. Finds initial conditions. It 
Then it turns all of this stuff into Charamella code, actually, and then we turn it into C and C++ and MATLAB and whatever. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very peculiar tool, and we, we are not sharing it at the moment. Nice. Nice. So after like discussing uh, the story of your life, the story of your career, which is if, interesting to anybody, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is interesting to people who exactly would like to follow your steps uh, to become freelancers in the field of audio programming. And now, if yeah, sorry, that, that, <laughs> if I can answer to any question that people want to ask, I mean, write me an email. Okay, uh, so we'll also include that. So exactly, I wanted to ask you, like, if someone approached you uh, and they, they are a student, so let's say a master's student approached you and said, hey, uh, I would like to become a, a freelancer, you know, in the area of, of audio programming, then what uh, what tips would you give them? Where, where can they learn this craft and how can they approach this? Hmm. Okay, it depends exactly what they want to do. Like, if they want to do DSP, it's one thing. And if they want to do audio-related development, it's a little bit different. Uh, if they want to do codecs, for example, it's yet another thing. Um, in general, I would give two advices. Um, on one hand, to be really comfortable with low-level programming, like computer architecture level stuff, operating systems, uh, programming in C. Um, this kind of stuff is priceless. It's really, really priceless. Um, on the other hand, if especially if they want to do DSP, to, um, my advice is maybe start with a generic book, but try to move to papers, research papers, as soon as possible, because I've seen too many bad books around. <laughs> nice nice that's very concrete actually and actually maybe maybe i should write it down uh for myself as well <laughs> yeah um and maybe one of the more more chilled out questions um so we went together actually to the digital audio effects conference in september which is a research conference on digital audio effects and and similar stuff so music music dsp and we also went to the audio developers conference in london which is more uh, for actual programmers and not very research oriented of course there is some overlap between the two so uh, i would really love to hear your thoughts on how these two conferences compare how, how are they different and what did you like in both of them mm. So, yeah, I mean, this was my first year at the Audio Developer Conference, but I've been at uh, DAFX like the fifth time or something like that. I don't remember. Um, yeah, they're absolutely different. And also the the vibe that you get is completely different. Um, the DAFX Conference is, as you said, for research stuff. So you will find people from universities mostly. and. Um, the topics that are discussed are very technical, very advanced. In many cases, I can follow like 20% of the presentation and understand them. And the rest starts to get very complicated and messy, especially lately with this, all this AI stuff, which I'm not an expert in. Um, 
so yeah, they essentially you go to um, a little bit find out what other researchers are doing in the field and uh, try to see what are the technical challenges ahead. Um, and get ideas on how to solve some, some technical challenges as well. Uh, ABC is more, uh, you know, product market programming oriented. So uh, if you want to be actually a programmer, but you're not necessarily interested in the mathematical details of stuff, that's the place to go. Also, if you want to, if you look for business opportunities, absolutely, Apex is okay. It's it has a fair amount of business stuff for a for a, an academic conference, which is very low, uh, unlike ADC. Nice, nice. Thanks a lot. And uh, also, like with this with this summary, I also also agree. And especially what you said, that the vibe the vibe is is completely different. Uh, I would I would compare it to like Dafix could be like your family dinner, and ADC would be partying with your friends, something like this. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you if you have such a family, such friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, Stefano, thank you so much. Thank you for for this for this talk. Uh, if someone wanted to contact you exactly to ask you questions on career advice, but also DSP or maybe contracting uh, or Astron, then where do you recommend they go? Mm, to my to, to my personal website, but also to the company website. Uh, I luckily have to. And they can contact me by email. I try to answer where any everybody, which I can do because nobody ever writes. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. And is there anything you'd like to add? Mm, no, I mean it's been a nice chat, and yeah, as, as you said, if anybody wants to contact me, I'm here to answer any question and stuff like that, as long as they are short. <laughs> cool. So thanks a lot, and uh, well, I hope to meet you in person soon. Then absolutely, it's going to happen very soon. I'm sure. <laughs> you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that was Stefano D'Angelo, the founder of the Orastron company and an awesome guy. Thank you once again, Stefano, for this talk. And if you would like to contact him, then there is his email address in the episode notes under dwolfsound.com slash talk 009, along with people, places and references. So once again, dwolfsound.com slash talk 009. If you would like to support this podcast, you can give a YouTube like or subscribe, but you can also leave a review at Apple Podcasts. I really, really appreciate each and every one of them. Again, let me remind you, if you would like to follow Stefano's footsteps, I have a resource for you. It's my audio plugin developer checklist, which you can get for free at dwolfsound.com checklist. And it lists really all the pieces of knowledge that are necessary to start audio programming. Thanks for tuning in and see you in the next one. Take care. <laughs>